Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this sermon series, Church and State, we're going to be exploring the history of the church's transformation from a small Jewish sect into the official religion of the Roman Empire. I hope you enjoy. Our first scripture reading this morning comes to us from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. You must understand this, that in the last days distressing times will come, for people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, I know that is a very serious one, (laughs) ungrateful, unholy, inhuman, implacable, slanderers, profligates, brutes, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the outward form of godliness but denying its power. Avoid them. For among them are those who make their way into households and captivate silly women, overwhelmed by their sins and swayed by all kinds of desires, who are always being instructed and can never arrive at a knowledge of the truth. As Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these people of corrupt mind and counterfeit faith also oppose the truth. But they will not make much progress because, as in the case of those two men, their folly will become plain to everyone. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, happy Mother's Day. (laughs) If you are a woman who's a mom, I hope that you said thank you to that, not the men. (laughs) All right, so we're doing uh, 1 Timothy. We're looking at the Timothys today. So 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, you heard from 2 Timothy. But 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 13. The saying is sure, whoever aspires to the office of bishop desires a noble task. Now a bishop must be above reproach. Married only once, temperate, sensible, respectable, hospitable, an apt teacher, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, keeping his children submissive and respectful in every way. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and the snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be serious, not double-tongued, not indulging in much wine, not greedy for money. They must hold fast to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them first be tested. Then if they prove themselves blameless, let them serve as deacons. Women, and technically that word there is the wives of deacons, Likewise, must be serious, not slanderers, but temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be married only once. Let them manage their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. So as you all know, well, many of you know, if you've been here, we are doing a sermon series called Church and State, The Rise of Early Christianity. Each week, we are looking at the documents in the New Testament, and we are asking the question, 
What does the church in the first century have to teach us about being the church in the 21st century? This is Mother's Day themed, by the way. I just want to point that out to you. I planned for that for today. But first, I need to kind of take you through some of the things that we've been talking about. Many of you here are here because your mom brought you. Thank you, mothers, for filling up our service today. I appreciate that. So let me give you a little background on what we're doing so that you're not super lost. So as you can see right there, there are four segments to this particular sermon series. We've been doing it all year. We are in the third part of this series. And the idea behind the third part is that we are discussing how Christianity establishes itself as having a completely separate identity from Judaism. So originally, Judaism, Christianity, they were kind of one thing. Now they're splitting apart from each other in the 90s. So today we read from the letters of 1st and 2nd Timothy. And both of these letters have Paul's name at the very top of them. But what's interesting is, does anybody have that list? Does anybody have the list anymore? That list I gave you? Oh, no, maybe. Oh, somebody has it on their phone. So anyways, I gave you all a list. And this list essentially gives all of the documents in the New Testament. And what you see is that when you get to 1st and 2nd Timothy that actually 1st and 2nd Timothy are written around 100 AD. Now that's important because Paul, who is the author of this letter, he supposedly died sometime in the mid-60s. So let's just say he dies in 65, just for round numbers. How many years later? That's what? Like 35 years later, right? And supposedly he's got his name at the top of it. So why do scholars say he dies in 65? Why do they say that it was written in 100 AD? Well, it's all about the content of the letter itself. So as you were re- as we were reading this this morning, we read from 1 Timothy, and it was really dull and boring, right? Like, to be perfectly honest with you, what are they talking about? They're talking about the requirements to become a bishop or a deacon in the church, which frankly, I know that that's not important to you at all. Like, I know that. But the fact is, it's really important for dating this particular letter. Because what you have to realize is that those positions, deacon, bishop, They didn't always exist in the church. In fact, when the church got started in 30 AD, those weren't even a thing. Didn't exist. So what happens is after the church gets started and they start to kind of become more established and solidified, certain people, certain churches, they want these people in these particular positions. And so they start to form these positions. And indeed, by 100 AD... You seem to have this hierarchy that's getting into the church, like a very established hierarchy. Now, that word bishop, do you all know the word bishop? You've heard that before, haven't you? When you think of bishop, what do you think of? You think of Catholic church, right? All right. And the Catholic church, the bishop, who is that? Somebody really high up there, right? In fact, that's only two steps below the pope. So bishop, when we think of it, is this person who's very, very important. But the Greek word for bishop is actually very different than what you think. So, technically, the Greek word for bishop is overseer, supervisor, ruler. And originally, a bishop was just a ruler of a particular church. So, you would call me a bishop. You can do that if you want to. (laughs) (laughs) Or ruled over a small conglomeration of local churches. That was what a bishop did. We don't technically use the word bishop in our church because of the way it was used in the Catholic Church. We kind of got away from it. And so we're all elders. Like, I'm technically a teaching elder, because I teach. That's Judy. That's TC. But there's other people in here that are called ruling elders, and they rule over the church. Those are members of our congregation. Now, the same thing is true of the word deacon. That word deacon just means servant or minister. 
And so a deacon is somebody who just serves their local church. So what you can see is in 30, there is none of these, there's no position like this, but then over the next 70 years, what happens is you see that they're getting more solidified in the way that they think about these things. And eventually, what happens is these roles, they get truly solidified into the church. And what you see is that the churches go from being these kind of individual entities where they're kind of out there on their own, fending for themselves, and eventually they start to kind of form these close connections. But by 100 AD, because that's where we are with all this, the churches aren't all on the same page. Like, you have to realize that. They're not all, like, working as a unit yet. There are small collections of churches that are moving more in that direction, which is important for this. Because do you know how they used to do it? Like, how they assign leadership when they first got started? So what would happen is they go out, you know, it's like 30 AD, right, which is about the time that Jesus dies. We have the resurrection, right? Then the disciples, they go out and they start planting churches all over the place, right? And so their leadership is based on who shows up. Literally, like, whoever's there in the church. And so what they would do is, at a certain point, they would move on to a different church, and they'd be like, all right, Bob, come over here. I want to talk to you for a second. So Bob would come over, and he'd say, look, Bob, I've been watching you. You seem like you're really involved here. You nod your head when I speak, so you kind of pretend like you know what's going on, right? And you are by far the best looking of the bunch here. There's no doubt about that. You have all your teeth, which is really big. 2,000 years ago, dental hygiene was not a big thing. So uh, I'm going to leave you in charge of this place. And I want you to do something for me. Can you not mess it up? Because the last nine churches I founded, they haven't worked out so well. And I really need the 10th one to work out for me, okay? So that's essentially what they would do. I'm paraphrasing. But that's essentially how it would work, right? Now that's, they have these people, they assign them, that's how they get it going. And then we get to 100 AD and all the original disciples, they're dead. They can't assign people anymore. So they come up with these very strict standards for what it takes to be a leader. Let's read those standards real quick, one more time. Now, a bishop must be above reproach, married only once, temperate, sensible, respectable, hospitable, an apt teacher, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, keeping his children submissive and respectful in every way. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? Ouch! You can't manage your own household? You can't be a leader in the church. In other words, if your kid's a screw-up, don't bother applying for the job is essentially what it comes down to, right? And by the way, I just want to say that clearly most churches do not take this particular requirement very seriously. If you know anything about PKs, pastor's kids, you know that if that was the truth, most pastors would have to find new careers. Right, Judy? You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Her kids are good, though. <laughs> They're good kids. So at this point in time, something I want to raise up to you so that you kind of understand is that these roles, these are not paid positions. That if you want to do this, you had to do this in addition to your job. So what this means is that if you were going to be this, you had to have some money. This is why people in the early church who ended up being priests and bishops and all this stuff, they were usually really wealthy. Because you couldn't do this whole thing in addition to your job. On top of all of this, you also had to have people in the church agree that you were the right kind of person for the job. You couldn't just say, oh, yeah, I want to do it. And you'd say, I'm the right man for the job. And I use that word man, by the way, 
very intentionally here. Because one of the ways that you can tell that 1st and 2nd Timothy were not written by Paul is because of the treatment of women in these particular letters. So what I have told you all in the past, in previous sermons if you were here, is that women in the early church actually were not secondary to men. That in fact they played a very important role. You can see that in Jesus' ministry, and you can see it in Paul's ministry. Paul actually has certain women who he leaves in charge of the church in particular places. But in First and Second Timothy, what you see is that this kind of deference towards women, it's not in those letters. And in fact, what you see in those letters is that women are often belittled, and their role is minimized in the church. Let's take a look at this verse from Second Timothy. You must understand this. In the last days, distressing times will come, for people will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Avoid them. For among them are those who make their way into households and captivate silly women, overwhelmed by their sins and swayed by all kinds of desires, who are always being instructed and can never arrive at a knowledge of the truth. That word silly that you see up there, that comes from the Greek word gunakarion. And Actually, they do a nice job here in this translation of trying to make it less incisive than it is, because it's actually a really bad word. Technically, it's supposed to be insulting because it's supposed to indicate contempt. Technically, if you want to translate this word correctly, it means weak-willed. So, essentially, this is based on a cultural concept that women do not have the same type of willpower as men. Now, I will tell you that in my own personal experience, I have found that this is actually not true. <laughs> that women are much better than men at playing the long game, and they're going to win one way or another, whether you like it or not. <laughs> and they're like, yes, that is true. <laughs> so why is it that this particular author, who is not Paul, we don't know who it is, but why is this author why is he doing what we would say is putting women in their place? That's kind of what's happening right here. Well, it's a reflection of a particular set of circumstances that had developed around 100 AD. And to understand what's happened, I've got to take you back to the very beginning of the church. Beginning of the church is all Jewish. Remember that? Like, everybody's Jewish, very beginning of the church. And what happens is they start in the Holy Land and they go out to other parts of the world. And, for instance, when Paul forms his churches, you have these women who are Roman citizens coming into the church. And Roman women had very different attitude towards being a woman than what you found in other parts of the world. They had very different ways of doing things. So, for instance, in Roman culture, women were allowed to go wherever they wanted to go. And they were allowed to do whatever they pleased, technically. They could talk to whomever they wanted to talk to. Not true of every place in the ancient world. Women couldn't always do that. Women could also own businesses. They could own their own businesses alongside and independent of their husbands. So in Roman culture, men were up here and women were just about a half step below, which is pretty good for the ancient world. But most importantly, women, they were able to participate in pagan religious ceremonies. So they could be leaders in these ceremonies. That's really, really key. So just think about it for a second. Just imagine this. Paul's out there. He's establishing his churches, right? 40 AD, and all of a sudden these Roman women come in, and he knows they have an expectation that they can be part of the leadership. So what does he do? Does he say, ah, you can't do it. Can't be part of it. No. 
What he does is he literally creates his leadership structure to be inclusive of women because he knows if he doesn't, they're going to walk away. And so what you see with Jesus and with Paul is that women could be leaders in the early church. Now, you go to 100 AD, which is where we are talking about today, right? Things have shifted. The number of Jews has shrunk to be like this, and the number of Romans has expanded to be like this. And so now, all of a sudden, you have all of these women who are vying for leadership roles in the church. And at this point in time, you have men who are trying to set up this hierarchy, and they don't want that to happen. Now, this is in a couple of different congregations. This isn't all over the place. But in these congregations, you have these women who have literally taken over the church. And so what happens is you have these men who write this letter. They put Paul's name at the top of it because what they want to do is they want to make sure that these women don't have a voice. They want to silence them, which they did. It was successful in doing that. But there's an important byproduct to this. The fact is, is that these letters were actually included in the New Testament. So yes, it silenced these congregations, but it had a byproduct effect of actually marginalizing women within the entire church, and it ended up making it so that women felt that they were less than men simply because they were women. I personally believe that if it hadn't been for the inclusion of First and Second Timothy, we wouldn't have to wait till 1956 for women to be ordained in the Presbyterian Church. Now here we are, Mother's Day 2018, and I can tell you all that I am very proud that we have women in a plethora of leadership roles in this church, and women really are forging a way forward for us in this church in the future. I'm very proud that we broke away from the other Presbyterian church. You all may not know anything about the denomination, but we are what you call PCUSA. The church we broke away from is called PCA, Presbyterian Church in America. They do not ordain women as pastors. They do not have women as elders. They do not have women as deacons. They do not have women as trustees. In these churches, they do not even have women, some of them, where they teach Sunday school to young boys, because that's how much they believe that men are superior to women. Now, Again, I'm proud to say that we have women in all of these leadership roles, all of them. And I want to thank you for bringing your gifts, your talents to our church, because you really are helping us to forge a way into the 21st century. And indeed, I believe personally that any church today that doesn't have women in leadership roles, and there are lots of them out there, they're done in the long run. I, really, I don't think they're going to make it much longer. And the reason why is because I see the women who are coming up right now, and they're just not going to stand for it. I mean, they're not going to be like, oh, yeah, that's okay. No, just because I'm a woman, you're right. I shouldn't be in leadership in a church, right? It's just not going to happen that way. And so what we're seeing is that our future is very different from our past, and that's a good thing. But the past does have something to teach us about the future, and one of the things that I think is so important that we can take away from First and Second Timothy is actually the fact that humans really like structure. Is that true? Do you think that humans really like structure a lot? I think we do, don't we? We don't like things to remain amorphous for too long. We don't like things to really just kind of be nebulous and out there. Now, structure, it does serve an important purpose, but the fact is, it makes change really difficult once it's in place. So let me give you an example. 
So when the church made the decision, when they adopted the posture that women were no longer to be in leadership roles, that became the law of the land for like how long? Like 1,900 years long. That's how long that was in place. Even though 70 years before 1st and 2nd Timothy were written, you got women in leadership in the church. 2,000 years of time that that lasted, just about. Now, we are in the Presbyterian Church. The Presbyterian Church is one of the most structured churches in all of Christianity. If you, for those of you who have been here a long time, I'm sure you've had other pastors up here tell you jokes about how structured we are, like the committees and everything like that. If you haven't been here, there's all these jokes, right? Basically, it's like, if you want to change a light bulb, you need a committee, right? If you want to smile and shake hands with another person, you need a committee. And if you think I'm joking about that, I am actually not joking about that in this church. <laughs> these light bulbs you see in here, they literally had a committee vote on those. We switched all of them to LED bulbs. Oh, the trustees had to vote on it. <laughs> when you all shake hands, you know the passing of the peace when you shake hands with each other? A committee had to vote on that. That only started a few months before I got here, five years ago. So, yes, people had to vote on that. You may be aware that the United States system of government is actually based on the Presbyterian system of governance. So have the words ever come out of your mouth, the government is so inefficient? Have you ever said that before? <laughs> it's the Presbyterians that made them that way. Now, structure, structure is a good thing sometimes. But it does make change a very slow process. And the fact is that we're not the only church that's that way. There are lots of churches out there with these really embedded governmental structures. They're designed to slow things down. They're designed to maintain the status quo, which is great for the things that are positive, not so great for the things that are negative. In my opinion, it should never have even been a question as to whether or not women should be ordained as pastors in the church. Shouldn't have even been a question. But it was a question for a really long time because that structure, the system that locked in all the stuff that we love, is the same system that locked in that prejudice towards women. But thankfully, things did change, didn't they? And you want to know why they changed? Well, they changed because of a tide of feminism in our country. You see, what happened originally was because of the structure of our church. What would happen is you had groups of people who came forward and they said, you know what, I think we should ordain women in the church. And everybody else, this other group, would come in and they would use the structure and they'd be like, hold on a second, let's not do that, right? But what happens is in the 20th century, you have this tide of feminism, you have tide of women's rights, and I don't think if it had been for that, if it hadn't been for that, I don't think we would have women as pastors in the church. Because you know what you'd have? You'd have a bunch of men sitting around, and this is what they would say. They would say, okay, well, now I hear what you're saying, but you know what? Uh, you know, women are going to have their day, but it probably shouldn't be right now, because we don't want to rock the boat too much, right? And we don't want to mess things up, so we're not going to do that. And that's if you think I'm joking, like that's exactly what people said for a long time. But because that tide was so strong, we ended up schisming. We literally split apart from one another. And good that we did. Because Judy wouldn't be a pastor today. And Judy's an amazing pastor. You think about somebody who has pastoral gifts, 
this is a woman who absolutely does. And she wouldn't be able to do that if we hadn't changed, our, changed the way it was. Now, here's the thing. This shift mostly happened in the 1970s. That's when like, the break started to really occur was in the 70s. And what I find to be so interesting about this break is that our church, the speed of change within our church, mirrored the speed of change within the culture. I was shocked because when I looked at it, I realized that our structure, it did not inhibit us from actually moving in lockstep with the changes in culture. Now, that was the 1970s when everything moved a lot more slowly. True? Okay. Today is very different, isn't it? Today is a totally different kind of situation. Today, 2018, the cultural changes are happening so rapidly that if you don't respond to them in real time, oftentimes you lose your opportunity to respond at all. And the church, of course, is not designed to function in this way. Like, I can get up here and I can preach you a sermon about a cultural shift, right? I can give you my opinion on it. But for us as a group to totally shift and change, that's much, much harder for us to do. And that's very worrisome to me as a pastor. You see, one of the things that has kept the church relevant for the last 2,000 years is that the church has acted as a venue where people can gather together and reflect on the morality of our culture. So let me give you an example of that. When African slaves became an integral part of the southern economy of the United States, the debate over the morality of slavery took place within the walls of the church. Now, to be fair, I think we need to just state that that was a minority opinion, this idea that slavery was immoral. Minority opinion. Most white Christians did not believe that to be true, both in the South and in the North. But that opinion, where did it start? It started in the church. And it was based on the principles of love taught by Jesus in the New Testament. And what that did was that it began the abolitionist movement, which led to the Civil War, which led to the freeing of African slaves. Now, why this is so critical to me is because when you have a debate about this, the fact is the reason why it worked is because you could always come back to something bigger. You could always go back and say, okay, well, let's talk about this in terms of the love that Jesus promotes in the New Testament. But today, what do you find? Is the church a place where people go to to talk about the morality in our culture? No, where do they do it? They do it on the internet. That's where it happens, is on the internet. Because it's immediate, right? There's literally, literally no gap between the topic and the response. Our role as a venue where people can come together and reflect on the morality of our culture, it's not necessary anymore. You don't need it to actually happen because you have it out there. And when we do reflect, by the way, when we do come up with a topic and we sit here and we say, hey, let's talk about this, we are usually late to the party or... The party is over entirely. It's like we're communicating in Morse code, and everybody else is communicating using video chat. We're like, do-do-do-do-do-do. Hold on, i got to interpret it. Do-do-do. And they're gone. They're gone. Now, here's the problem with the internet being a place where everybody is talking about the morality of our culture. Have you ever been on the internet before? I don't know if you have. But it's not exactly a place where a lot of productive conversation occurs, is it? I mean, usually on the internet, it is very divisive, it's very vicious, it's very polarizing, and that's because the basis of morality on the internet is your opinion versus my opinion. 
And when it's just an opinion versus an opinion, guess what? There is no clear winner in that because we can't go back to anything else. There's nothing else for us to fall back on, right? I can't sit there and say, hey, we should look at the Bible on this one. It's just whatever you think. And if I don't like what you think, what do I do? Unfollow. <laughs> right? That's all I got to do. But here we have stumbled upon something that is so, so critical. Something that the church has in its possession that I think is the key to the church remaining relevant in the future. And hear me on this, because this is the key to everything I've been saying today. We are a community of people who have to work out our differences because we choose to sit side by side every single Sunday. Do you hear what I'm saying? We are a group of people who have to work out our differences because we come together and we choose to sit side by side every single Sunday. Do we all agree in here? No. no. Do we all see the world in the same way? No. But because the basis of our belief is Jesus' love, we are willing to set aside and we are willing to sacrifice our need to be right for the benefit of the greater community. And my friends, let me tell you something. Without that sacrifice, without the willingness to sit there and say, you know what, we're going to do this for the greater good of the community, we get rid of the ability to have understanding, we get rid of the ability to have forward progress, and we are shutting down what makes our society work together. So here's what I see as the future. I do not know if this place, the structure that we have here, I don't know if it's going to survive into the future. I don't know if it is. And I know what you're thinking. Oh, my God, what am I going to do with my evenings if I don't have to go to committee meetings every night? I mean, how could I possibly fill in all of that free time that I would have? But here's what I do know for sure. What I do know is that it's important for us to fight for the relationships that we have in this building. We need to fight for the relationships we have here because pretty soon the church is going to be the last place where this type of community exists. So here's what I want you to do today as we end. I want you to turn to your neighbor, to your mother, because it is Mother's Day, to your friends, to your family, to the stranger who's sitting next to you, and I want you to say, I love you. Can you do that for me right now? So, I love you guys, and I want you to know that as long as we continue to work out our differences, as long as we are guided by God's love, then I believe that we will not only survive, but we will thrive, because we will be a beacon of hope to this lost and broken world. Happy Mother's Day, and amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.